If you would, take out your Bibles with me and let's open them up to the book of Romans in chapter 10. The book of Romans in chapter 10. As we continue going uh, verse by verse through this wonderful letter uh, to the Christians in Rome in the first century, uh, the book of Romans that has changed the lives of so many people. And our uh, bulletin says that this morning we're coming to Romans 10 verse 5. But I've changed my mind, and we're going to do one more sermon on Romans 10, verse 4, because I felt there were some important things uh, that hadn't yet been said that, uh, that I want to make sure get said about Romans 10, uh, verse 4. So as you're turning there, uh, let me remind you that there are two ways to be saved. There are two roads that lead to heaven. The first road is the road of the law. It is the road of works righteousness. And if you can be morally perfect, if you can completely fulfill God's moral purposes for your life without committing a single sin or going astray in any word, thought, or deed, then that road will get you to heaven. As you can imagine, that is an impossible road for us, is it not? Uh, Trying to take that road to heaven would be like trying to take a road covered in the slickest ice imaginable, stretching for miles and miles, and you try and walk it without slipping once. And the fact is we could never do it, and we haven't done it. We have all already Slipped. The, the road of the law is a road that could hypothetically get us to heaven, but it's already too late for us to even try that road because we've already fallen off. And when you fall off the slippery road of the law, you die. Tonight, I'll show you pictures of the Jericho Road that stretches from Jericho to Jerusalem. And it's a road that winds around these steep cliffs. You fall off that road, you fall to your death. And we were told that an Italian lady slipped two weeks ago and fell to her death. This is how it is with the slippery road of the law. Whoever tries to live by that road will die by that road. And this is where we all started out. We were created by God, and we were going to try and walk this road of perfection to have God's favor and to get to heaven, and we've all slipped, and we're now all plummeting to our deaths, an eternal death in hell. But we're not in hell yet. We're still falling. We're still headed towards that fiery abyss. The road of the law is no longer an option for us. And this is why Romans 10 verse 4 is such wonderful, glorious gospel news for us. It tells us that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. In other words, without Christ, our whole lives would be spent trying to figure out how to undo what we've already done how to stop our fall into hell, how to get back up onto that road of the law, 
And then if somehow we could do that, which we never could, but if somehow we could undo all the sins we've already done and get back up onto that road of the law, we'd still have to try and make it on the slipperiest ice imaginable. For Christians, we don't have to worry about any of that anymore because Christ is the second road and the better road. And at the end of the day, he's the only real road available for us to heaven. Rather than reaching heaven through works righteousness, rather than reaching heaven through our own good deeds, all that God requires for this road is that we humble ourselves and cast ourselves upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus who gets us safely to heaven. In fact, in a very real way, these two roads are actually the same road because Christ is the only person who can walk the road of the law and never slip. When I had fallen off, when I was plummeting to my death, Christ reached down and he grabbed me. He snatched me from falling into the fire. He pulled me up. And then he put me on his shoulders and he walked the road of the law and he walked it perfectly and he walked it for me. He walked it in my place and he walked it for you if you are a believer. So this is what we hit hard on last time. We hit hard on this fact that Christ is the end. Christ is the termination of the law as a means of righteousness for us who believe. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and not by works of the law. And to God be the glory. Amen? Amen. And I agree with John Murray and others that that is the main meaning of Romans 10, verse 4. But I also agree with others that there is a hint of something else in this verse. Because for the Jews, the law that they had from God was the full Mosaic law. Everybody say Mosaic law. Right, so this is the law that was given to Israel in fire and in smoke on Mount Sinai. And we're not just talking about the Ten Commandments. We're talking about hundreds upon hundreds of commands, dealing with moral living, uh, dealing with religious life and sacrifices and instructions about feast days and civic order and the arrangement of the camps of Israel. And I think Paul is at the very least implying in verse 4 that Christ is the end of that law. Now before I explain this, and before I explain what that has to do with you and what that has to do with me, I want us to read again from Romans. So I want us to start back in Romans 9, verse 30. Okay, Let's go back to Romans 9, verse 30, and we're going to read through chapter 10, verse 4, and then I'm going to have you look at one other passage. But let's start here. Romans 9, verse 30, and let me just remind you, We're reading the very word of the holy, holy, holy God we sung about earlier. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. 
that is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And before we talk about it a little more, let me ask you real quickly to turn to Matthew 24. To Matthew 24. It's Passion Week in Matthew 24. Jesus is very near His crucifixion, very near the day of His death. And He and His disciples have just been at the temple. And now as they are leaving the temples, they... They turn and they look back at the temple complex. And the temple complex was massive. And they're marveling. Even the folks who came from ancient Rome with all its huge buildings were said to have marveled when they saw the Jewish temple. The stones were massive. Some would stretch from this side of the room to this side of the room. They were so large. And so look at what we read in the first two verses. Of Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them. You see all these. Do you not? Truly I say to you. There will not be left here one stone upon another. That will not be thrown down. So what I'm arguing is that Paul's statement in Romans 10.4 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, I'm arguing that that is mainly a statement about the way of salvation. It is a statement about the way of faith as opposed to the way of works. But it's also a prophetic statement. Because Paul wrote the book of Romans in the mid to late 50s A.D. And when Paul wrote this, the Jews were still living under the Mosaic Law. The the temple still stood. The sacrifices were still going on. The, The priesthood continued to operate. And the vast majority of Paul's kin were still trusting in the Mosaic Law as their means of getting to heaven. And as we've seen Paul lament over and over again, his fellow kin, they, they had rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had rejected the way of faith that the Old Testament was pointing them to, and instead they were pursuing the way of works through the Old Testament law code. Now, the word end, E-N-D, has two meanings, both in Greek 
and in English. And I like it when it works that way because that makes it easy, right? So the word end has two meanings, both in Greek and in English. In English, I can use the word end, the end of the law. I can use the word end to speak of termination, right? The service is at an end would mean the service is over, right? The service is finished. The service is done. But if I ask, to what end should we do this? I'm using the word end in a different way. I'm using it in its second meaning, the meaning of goal, the meaning of purpose, right? What is your end in view? There's an old joke. It's not very funny. It's more of a a pun um, based on the shorter catechism. And uh, hopefully many of you know the first question of the shorter catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? And the answer is his head. See, it's not very funny, right? But it's, it's, a, it's a pun playing on the word end because when we ask, what is the chief end of man? What are we really asking? We're not asking where's his end, right? Where, where does he end? Where does he stop? Where's his termination? We're asking, what is his chief goal? What is the chief purpose of man? And the answer, of course, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, sometimes these two meanings for the word end come together. So think of a finish line in a race, right? That finish line in a race. That finish line is both the goal, the aim that the runners are running for, And it's also the end point, the termination of the race. And so also, I think when Paul says in Romans 10.4 that Christ is the end of the law, I think he means it in both these ways. And I think he's thinking particularly of the Mosaic law. First and foremost, he's saying Christ is the goal. Christ is the purpose of the Mosaic law. Meaning, by the way, what are we talking about here? We're talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? That's our Mosaic law. Um, uh, tonight, I'll show you a prayer shawl that the, uh, the Jews would, Jewish rabbis would wear. And they had five knots that they would tie into their prayer shawl. And each one of those knots was for one of the five books of the Mosaic law. So one for Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Okay. So we have the Mosaic law. And what Paul is saying here is that every commandment that's in that law, every instruction about what garments the priests were to wear and what stone was to go wear in the temple and what all of these legislations about sacrifices, all these legislations about civil life and about moral living, they all pointed to Christ. They all had an aim in view, and that aim was Christ. Even the very temple itself which Jews came to three times a year, was pointing in its every minute detail to Christ. And therefore, because Christ was the aim and the goal and the purpose of the Mosaic Law, once he came and the gospel was being proclaimed, the time of the Mosaic Law came to an end. Christ is the termination of the Mosaic Law because he is the fulfillment of the Mosaic Law. Now, let me be very clear. The underlying morality of the Mosaic Law continues. You don't need to cut the first five books out of your Bible and throw them away now, okay? They're still very valuable. 
The, the, the morality summarized in the Ten Commandments is rooted in the very character of God. The, that morality still stands. Those mooring principles still abide. But the Mosaic Law was first and foremost the constitution for ancient Israel. And in 70 AD, as if to show that the Mosaic Law had come to an end, about 15 years after Paul writes this in Romans, As if to show that all men should turn to the gospel and not to the law for salvation. As if to show that rejecting the Son of God is dangerous. God brought an end to ancient Israel. And he left the temple in shambles. I want to read to you just a little bit of what happened. I read some of this to our youth a couple of Sundays ago. Um, This is 70 AD. This is Jerusalem under siege. This is Titus and his Roman army, and they're about to wreak havoc on Israel. And here's what uh, author Simon Montefiore says. Just listen to what happened. It's kind of gross. Sorry to read this before lunch. Around the walls, there were gruesome scenes that must have resembled hell on earth. Thousands of bodies were putrefied in the sun. The stench was unbearable. Packs of dogs and jackals feasted on human flesh. In the preceding months, Titus had ordered all prisoners or defectors to be crucified. Five hundred Jews were crucified every day. The Mount of Olives and the craggy hills around the city were so crowded with crucifixes that there was scarcely room for any more nor trees to make them. Titus's soldiers amused themselves by nailing their victims splayed and spread eagled in absurd, absurd positions. So desperate were many Jerusalemites to escape the city that as they left, they swallowed their coins to conceal their treasure, which they hoped to retrieve when they were safely clear of the Romans. They emerged, according to Josephus, puffed up with famine and swelled like men with dropsy, But if they ate, they burst asunder. As their bellies exploded, the soldiers discovered their reeking intestinal treasure troves, and so they started to gut all the prisoners, eviscerating them, searching their intestines while they were still alive. Titus was appalled. He tried to ban these anatomical plunderings, but to no avail. Titus, Syrian auxiliaries who hated and were hated by the Jews with all the malice of neighbors, they relished these macabre games. The cruelties inflicted by the Romans and the rebels within the walls of Jerusalem compare with some of the worst atrocities of the 20th century. A little bit more. The fighting raged among the flames. Dazed, starving Jerusalemites wandered lost and distressed through the burning portals. Thousands of civilians and rebels mustered on the steps of the altar, waiting to fight to the last or just die hopelessly. They all had their throats cut by the exhilarated Romans as though it were a mass human sacrifice until all around the altar lay dead bodies heaped upon one another with the blood running down the steps of the temple. Ten thousand Jews died in the burning temple itself. The cracking of vast stones, the wooden beams made a sound like thunder. Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, watched the death of the temple 
And he said, the roar of the flame streaming far and wide mingled with the groans of falling victims. And owing to the height of the hill and the mass of the burning pile, one would have thought the whole city was on fire. And then there was the noise. Nothing more deafening or appalling could be conceived than that. There were the war cries of the Roman legions sweeping onward, the howls of the Jewish rebels encircled by fire and swords, the rush of the people who, cut off above, fled panic-stricken only to fall into the arms of the foe, and their shrieks as they met their fate, blended with the lamentation and wailing of those in the city. Transjordan and the surrounding mountains contributed their echoes, deepening the noise. You would have thought that the Temple Hill was boiling over from its base, being everywhere one mass of flame. Most of what we know about what happened in 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem and of Israel we know from Josephus. He claims that there were over a million people in the city when the Romans attacked and that hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of them died. As we just read, more than 10,000 died in the courts of the temple alone. Here's the amazing thing. Almost no Christians died in the destruction of Jerusalem. Almost none. And Christianity had grown, exploded in the 35 years before this happened. Why did no Christians die when Israel was destroyed, when Jerusalem was destroyed? Answer, because the Christians had trusted what Jesus had said. When Jesus walked this earth, he had warned his fellow men that if they rejected him, judgment was coming. He warned about what Daniel had called the abomination of desolation. He had warned about the coming destruction. In fact, as Jesus was walking to Golgotha, as he was going to die on the cross, Luke tells us that there were these women following behind him. They were mourning. They were lamenting his coming death. And Jesus wasn't even thinking about himself. He was thinking about them. And he said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. They will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and they will say to the hills, cover us. In Matthew 24, the the passage we read earlier, Jesus said there will not be left one stone atop another in the temple. And so when the Christians saw the Romans coming, they left Jerusalem. They fled. In fact, God used this to take the gospel to other parts of the world. And the Jews who had rejected Christ, they did not leave the city, and they were slaughtered. And the ancient nation of Israel came to an end. It's very different than the modern-day nation of Israel. The ancient nation of Israel came to an end in 70 A.D., along with the priesthood, along with the temple, along with the Mosaic law. Now, why is that important to us? We're Gentiles, right? What what, what does that have to do with with you and me? Well, we see here the trustworthiness of Christ's word. We see that when Jesus says something, we can count on it. 
We, we hear here a terrible warning not, that, that if we don't heed what Jesus has told us, it can be dangerous for us. Jesus speaks to us through his Bible for our good, and we neglect his word at our own peril. We see here a warning about God's coming judgment. Because what happened to Israel is going to happen to the world. Israel was a picture of the big picture. Israel was a microcosm of God's plan for history. Israel rejected her own Messiah with only a small remnant coming to trust Jesus. And on the day of judgment, 70 AD, it was only the little remnant that trusted Jesus that were saved. And the rest were killed. So also on the very last day, in the the true day of judgment, it will be those who have rested in Christ who will be safe. Jesus is a refuge. Jesus is a fortress for us. And if we are not in the refuge of Christ Jesus, we will be exposed to the righteous wrath of God poured out upon us because of our sin and our wickedness. And it will be a judgment greater than anything the Romans could ever muster. But another lesson we can learn from this is this one. God was making clear to the world in unmistakable terms that salvation was no longer to be found among the signposts. The signposts. You see, the Mosaic Law, it was one signpost after another. The Mosaic Law was a thousand signposts all pointing to the coming Messiah. Old Testament saints like Abraham and David and Elijah, these men were saved by reading the signposts that they had at their time and trusting in the Messiah that the signs said were coming. But now that Jesus had come, the signposts were no longer needed. The temple was a major signpost. It was destroyed in 70 AD. It has not been rebuilt to this day. The writer of Hebrews uses two different expressions to describe what was happening here. In Hebrews 7.18, he describes the Old Covenant as being set aside. Those are the words he uses. And this is what God was now doing. He was setting aside the Mosaic Law because the Christ, to which the Mosaic Law had always pointed, had come. God was setting aside the old covenant because the new covenant to which it had always pointed had come. And in Hebrews 8 verse 13 we read, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And boy did it. With the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, whether Jews liked it or not, the old covenant vanished away. But sadly, some people today continue to reject the way of salvation in Jesus and they want to go back to the Old Covenant. And instead of seeing how the Old Covenant only existed to point to Jesus and the gospel and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, some people want to go back to the Old Covenant, back to the Old Testament, back to the old rituals and ceremonies, and they want to have a works-based salvation through the Old Covenant. Tonight I'll show you pictures of the Wailing Wall. 
The temple in Jerusalem, it's gone. Today, there's the Dome of the Rock, a, a Muslim shrine sitting on top of a sacred rock where the temple once stood. But part of the ancient wall that used to surround the whole temple complex still remains, and it's in Jewish territory, some of it. And so today, Jews gather at this wall, and because it's as close as they can get in their own territory to where the Holy of Holies used to be, they pray, and they chant, and they weep, and they sing. Another option is the rabbinic tunnels that go underground. So there at the Whaley Wall, you can take these tunnels that follow along an underground wall so that you're as close as you can possibly get in Jewish territory to where the Holy of Holies used to be. And there you find scores of people, mainly women, praying there for fertility, praying there for for holy children and healthy children. The, the temple is gone, so these folks are holding on to the ancient walls. They're holding on to these relics in order to cry out to God. Do you know about the Temple Institute? The Temple Institute is an organization that has made it its chief end to be prepared for the building of the third temple. So they've already created all of the furniture that you read about in Exodus and Leviticus, so that when the new temple is built, they'll have all the furniture ready to go in. Uh, They do have one problem. It's the problem of the red heifer. The Bible commands that a completely red cow be used in certain purification rituals for the temple. And the problem is that cow is now extinct. It doesn't exist anymore. And so the Temple Institute along with some Pentecostal Christians in the Midwest, have been working to try and rebreed the red heifer back into existence. Listen to what the Temple Institute says about this. They say, perhaps it would be difficult for some to believe that a cow could be so important. But in truth, the fate of the entire world depends on the red heifer. For God has ordained that its ashes alone are the single missing ingredient for the reinstatement of biblical purity and thereafter the rebuilding of the holy temple. You see, there are people that they want to go back. They want to return to the old covenant. What are we to make of this? First, let us beware going back to the signposts now that Christ has come. For whatever reason, there appears to be something in the heart of man that makes us want to go back to the old covenant and to treat it as a way of works rather than embracing Jesus Christ as everything we need for heaven and salvation. He is the fulfillment of the whole law. We do not need nor should we have the Mosaic covenant anymore. And yet look at the Roman Catholic Church. Look at the Eastern Orthodox Church, the largest branches of Christianity in the world. They continue the priesthood, don't they? Rather than embracing Christ as the one true and final priest to whom all Old Covenant priests pointed, they continue to have priests, like in the Old Testament, who intercede between God and man. They continue the sacrificial system. Roman Catholics believe that every time they take Mass, the elements actually become the body and blood of Christ and that they break Christ's body when they break the bread. 
and that every Mass is a re-sacrificing of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a return to the Old Covenant. Messianic Jews, that is, Jews who have become Christians, they often struggle with this, mixing faith in Jesus with a continuation of Old Testament rituals and ceremonies. And yet Paul says that Christ is the end of the law. Even we Protestants, us good old Protestants, even we can be guilty of this. Have you ever known Christians who treated their church building as a temple? They act as if the building is a holy place. We, we know the truth. God now dwells not in a building made by hands of men. God now dwells in the hearts of those who believe. His Holy Spirit is in us. Every Christian is a temple. And when we gather together for worship, we gather as living stones, constructing a grand temple in which God comes. And we believe, because the Bible says it, that God's presence, just as real as it was in the Holy of Holies in the temple, is in this room right now, not because of anything in this room, but because of the people who are gathered in this room. People who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know that if we were to leave this building and we were to go worship out in the parking lot right now, that's where the Holy of Holies would be. That's where God's special presence would be. That would be a temple to the Lord. Gone are the days of holy furniture. Gone are the days of holy land. In fact, every created thing on this earth is going to be burnt up. Except for human beings. It's human souls, eternal believing human souls who are the new temple of God. So let's be careful that even as we show due respect to the place where we gather, let us never fall into idolizing buildings or furniture or relics of any kind. And it was eye-opening to me on my trip to see how much of that is going on in the world today, turning every little stone that Jesus might have touched into a relic. Second, let us beware any idea that makes our standing before God depend in any way on our works. Flee any sense of work salvation, whether it's going to church, whether it's being baptized or anything else. We must be clear that these things do not make us right with God. Christ has walked the road of the law for us and he did not slip. He finished the course And we cannot add to what He has done. We cannot take away from what He has done. He is our righteousness before God. And so yes, let us live obedient lives. Let us live lives that obey the law of God. But let us live those lives out of gratitude, out of worship, never out of a desire to merit our salvation. No, in Christ God loves you already. In Christ, you already have his favor. And because Christ never changes, you will never lose it. And third and finally, let us hear now the call to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Aren't we glad that we don't have to walk the road of the law? Aren't we glad that God in his mercy and his kindness and in his great love, has done everything necessary for us to be saved. The doorway of salvation has been thrown wide open. 
Every person who hears the gospel has an opportunity to be saved. Is there any person in this room who has not called out on Christ for salvation? Is there any person in this room who is still relying on yourself rather than humbling yourself like a child and calling on Jesus to save you and trusting yourself completely to Him? See heaven open before you. Run to Jesus and to Jesus alone and be saved. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.